Christmas 1914 would have been straight out of a fairy tale. On the 24th of December, the weather changed abruptly. Along the front it turned bitterly cold, and the sun that shone all afternoon was too weak to unfreeze the puddles of muddy water that stretched everywhere. Rats and rabbits skittered on the ice and even the lice, as dug in as we were in our hair and clothing, seemed lethargic in the cold conditions. It was a better day than most for scratching. That night, a thin cloud cover formed, but the temperature didn't ease up and a light snow fell, dusting the desolate landscape with a fine layer of crystals. The branches of dead trees, what trees remained standing, became lit in an unnatural way, rather like actors on stage are lit in an unnatural way from reflected light below. What was beginning to be familiar terrain suddenly took on a strange, eerie appearance, and I remember wondering whether I had, in fact, been shot and killed, and was now looking on to the other side, a version of hell that had indeed frozen over. But no, the eeriness was all too real, That night, as midnight approached, when it was already Christmas by their time but not with us, we heard movement in the German trenches. Where we were, they were about eighty yards away, no more, so sounds carried. First one, then another small fir tree was hoisted onto the lip of their trenches, lit by candles. One of our sharpshooters fired at one of the trees and knocked it back down out of sight. This, normally, would have brought a burst of answering fire from the Germans, but not this time. All was quiet. I barked an order, the sharpshooter made no attempt to fire at the second tree, and we all waited. After a delay, there was another small commotion on the German side, and another tree was positioned on the lip of their trench, again lit by candles. This time we left it alone. Again we waited. Some minutes afterwards we heard the strains of a mouth organ, a trembling, unassertive, even vulnerable sound, which only just carried across the distance. Its tone was plaintive. It was a lonely, melancholy sound. It played a few bars, and then voices joined in. The song, which I recognised, was Die Wacht am Rhein, The Watch on the Rhine, based on a nineteenth-century German poem. The clouds had gone by now, and the front had a stark beauty in the clear moonlight. On our side, we had all but forgotten the cold. As the song ended, one of our men shouted, Guten singing, Fritz, or something very like it. We all laughed and cheered. After a short silence, the mouth organ started up again, and the Germans gave us Stille Nacht, Silent Night, which of course allowed us the opportunity to join in with English words. What a scene! Two groups of men, in ditches eighty yards apart, who hours before had been doing their level best to slaughter each other, singing in unison. Well, almost. Everyone sensed that this was something historic. It was one of those moments in life when everyone, everyone, raised his game and no one who was there will ever forget it. 
I was twenty-three then, and a second lieutenant in the 47th Gloucestershire Rifles. I was born and grew up in Edgewater, a tiny Cotswold hamlet not far from Stroud. My school career had its moments, mostly wrong moments. I was good at languages, but that was about it. I was caught smoking twice and fighting twice. These fights weren't brawls, but midnight bare-knuckle knockout bouts in the school ring. This is how arguments were settled in my school and were highly illegal. I escaped expulsion by the skin of my teeth, and only because, on the second occasion, I was rehearsing for the school play opposite the one woman in the cast, who happened to be the headmaster's daughter. She had set her heart on a career on the West End stage, and lent on her father not to sack me. Twenty-three was a little old for the rank I held.